This is a News Laundry podcast and you're listening to the Media Rumble Sessions. Thank you so much. And uh, thank you panelists for for being here. Um in a sense what we've seen over the last uh, two and a half years is like this forced laboratory which has made all of us irrespective of whether we plan to or not jump into some form of digitization of education um some have been better placed in a sense to take that opportunity like byjus and edtech players who must have seen a huge boom during this phase and uh, some were caught in a sense quite unawares so if each of you can spend about 2 minutes keep it quite crisp because time is tight on what were the challenges how you capitalized on them or uh, dealt with them and then we can talk about where that leads in terms of opportunities going forward perhaps uh, let me ask maya to begin thank you very much uh, for having me on this panel although as i said i think i'm a bit of a misfit uh, i'll try my best to address uh, some of the questions that this panel raises uh, as you all know i'm a journalist who's found my way into academia i teach media studies um in a, a university where this program is a minor so uh, it's not a full undergraduate program it is sort of auxiliary to other degrees and disciplines that students do um that poses a specific set of challenges for us as a department uh, one of them being that we have to compete for the students time and attention with their primary disciplines um and that is a challenge in the real world it became an even bigger challenge uh, in the virtual world uh this is not to say that we did not uh, make the switch to a digital classroom fairly seamlessly i mean i think in that early uh lockdown that first couple of weeks we were emerging from a mid semester break and we actually just never went back to campus uh, we took a week for our it department to tell us how we were going to do a google google classroom or set up zoom accounts and most of us were really good to go um the challenges came to classes which required an element of practical work so from the perspective of media studies that practical work meant two things one is your ability to go out onto the field to gather information and the other was your ability to um make a product out of the content you had gathered from the field so the studio became inaccessible to the students uh it forced us to look at new softwares new technologies um and and the early early days were a bit of a struggle but i have to say i think you know this generation of of undergraduate students are dynamic they're resilient uh and they're very adaptable and they're much more savvy with digital technologies than any of us sitting here i mean well i don't speak for ashish but certainly uh you know kishore and me i can speak for right uh, certainly the, the two of us were um so uh, you know it was interesting for us to also learn from them um we still use computer screens and laptops and keyboards and want our editing software and our timeline to be seen before us they're doing everything on their phone uh you know and i'm like how do you see something which is so small i keep asking them that and i think you know 
Prof, we can do it. It's not, not our problem. That's yours if you can't see. Change your glasses. You know, I get, I get comments like that. So the thing is that I think it was a learning both ways. It was a learning for us because could we tailor or retailor our content, which was meant to be taught in the real world, to being taught in a virtual classroom? And the second is, given that the students are so digitally savvy, what could we take from them? in order to make our classes easier. So quickly, what are the couple of things that you took from them? What are the couple of things I took from them? Uh, you mean apart from keeping my camera off uh, <laughs> when I'm in a classroom? Um, being comfortable with your dog being on screen. My dog attended every single class that I conducted for two years. So, you know, God bless him. I lost him about a year ago now. But he was the star of every classroom. And it's the only time the camera came on for my students to ask if the dog had been fed or had been walked or, you know, where was he? Because he was missing. Um, but I think what I, what I learned from them was adaptability. Um, you know, the ability to say, all right, fine, this is what our situation is right now. And we're working from home. I mean, the, our students are working in... You know, they're homes with other members of their family. Uh, there's siblings attending class next to them. There's grandparents in the other room. Um, there's their mother working, you know, on a computer at the other end of the dining table. And very often you could sense that the students themselves were a bit anxious about their parents maybe hearing a conversation they were having in a classroom or a sibling hearing it. So you would kind of say, okay, fine. I know that this is making some of them a little uncomfortable. Let's look for other examples that we can talk about without you being awkward in front of your families. Um, so subjects that we would normally discuss very freely in a um, face-to-face -face classroom, maybe some of those we got more... Um, I don't want to use the word circumspect because that has a negative connotation. I don't think there's anything negative about it. I think we became more sensitive to each other's circumstances. Um, so that's a takeaway, you know? So you said you adapted quite fast. This may have had to do with the fact that your classes were relatively small, it being an elective. Kishulai, was your experience the same? You had larger classes, and how were you able to adapt taking this technology out to large numbers? Thanks, Moit. No, the experience is more or less the same. We are uh, universities on two sides of the road, privileged universities. Um, so when I'm, when we, uh, so my experience doesn't really reflect what was the experience of the rest of the universities and educational institutions in the country. Uh, we, I remember, we had to move hardware uh, when all the interstate uh, borders were uh, sealed. We managed to move hardware. Uh, there were IT uh, engineers, in the, which, which are always very few in every institution. We had like four or five people who were working overnight, moving in all kinds of wiring, et cetera, in every faculty household. But every faculty wasn't staying on campus. So what do you do with a faculty who are living in, in Goa or someone is in Tiruvannantapur and someone, someone is in Delhi, Noida? But the bigger problem that we faced is that when, so while we use the word seamlessly, we seamlessly moved on. And it's fascinating of how there was an initial resistance that, no, 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 we can't do this Teams or whatever, Zoom, this is not, we can't teach. Uh, then everyone, within about a week's time, everyone was like a pro. Um, they, they did, I mean, everyone had to do unmute several times, which we still, yeah, unmute and mute and unmute. All that happened, all that was fun. It, you know, it became, uh, you know, memes all over the world and et cetera, et cetera. But I'm, I want to highlight what was happening too. 
two categories of students. One, the students who could not access. You know, students who were like far away in Arunachal Pradesh. Students that time in Jammu and Kashmir did not have internet. So we are talking about a large population of students who did not have access. So uh, this seamless thing really didn't work for them. Second is that the more privileged students even in South Delhi, and they wouldn't switch on their video, and some of them, not switching on video had become of course a trend, but uh, some of them who really wanted to later said that they couldn't because you know, their parents believe that their three siblings, all three should be sharing the same room with the same Wi-Fi. They said that we are not going to switch on. So it's not like every single student were having a you know, study room to themselves, however uh, you know, well off they were. So, you know, that digitization, that experience, or if we, if, if we are drawing from COVID, we know now it's very well documented that there has been tremendous learning loss around the world. Uh, in middle income uh, countries, uh, from 53%, it's gone up to 70% of closure of schools. Um, so that many students have actually dropped out of education. Earlier, we would uh, talk about schools not having toilets for girls, and that's why girls after class six would drop out of um, uh, schools in India. Now we are going to not talk about toilets, but we're actually going to talk about not having access to um, handheld sets or any kind of, or, or, the, or the wave, the frequency, and they're going to drop out of education because of that. So I don't know how we are going to, so for her, for Maya and Ma, for me, our, Universities are, are are going to be are not going to be say, facing that problem, but the rest of the world and rest of India will. Many other many parts of India will. Can and I just make one quick addition to what uh, Kishaloy was saying on this issue of learning loss? I mean, and this is not from the perspective that he was talking about in terms of access. I think because of the nature of the times that we were going through, the pandemic, the kind of impact, you know, people were falling sick in our students' homes, in the faculty homes. Uh, we were dealing with Delta, we were suddenly dealing with, and you know, an, a situation force majeure that we didn't really understand. And the learning loss has also happened because there has been either a self-imposed pressure or an institutionalized kind of, top-down pressure uh, for the need for leniency. Because we're, we have to understand what everyone is going through. That need for empathy and understanding uh, had the tendency sometimes to be carried to an extreme where you said, all right, fine, I mean, you know, take your grade. I don't think you deserve it, but okay. Uh, and, and that became, that, 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 I don't think the impact of that has been felt yet. But I think it's something that could be felt in, you know, as these batches graduate. Ashish, I'm going to frame my question to you in a particular perspective. Um, so my son went to the same school where uh, Ashish is now heading educational uh, digitization. And uh, at the time when I was uh, heading the PTA, we oversaw the influx of EWS children. And uh, this was a challenge then in terms of books, uniforms, etc., And of course, we were lucky in that the PTA and the school were able to mobilize parent opinion towards the fact, look, these kids are now part of the school, they're going to the same classes as your kids, and we need to support them. In, uh, and the promoters were also very, very um, enlightened in that regard. But when you get to digital access, 
you're talking about a substantial jump in terms of the kind of resources. How did the school cope with that? And what was the relative sort of learning loss for the very privileged children who go to Shriram school and the EWS kids? So thanks, Mohit. I think um, you bring up a great point. First of all, I think I had thought I represent a minority, but I think on this panel, I think all three of us come from very privileged institutions. Uh, I still remember, I think uh, it was early March where there was talk of, you know, this the COVID going around and uh, potential closures. And I remember, I think it was 14th March, I got a call from our director saying we're shutting school. And uh, I think the first point that she raised was, uh, what do we do about you know, the pupils, which are the economically weakened sections uh, that were present in school? And uh, I said, let me just get back to you. And I think we got on a call a couple of hours later uh, with the promoters, with the senior management. I think uh, it was fairly clear that uh, you know, we're not going to be opening for at least a few weeks. And I think that was good enough a reason for them to just say that, uh, you know, to hell with the budgets, uh, get the devices, get access, let's start. And I think uh, we only met, I think, um, probably a month later to figure out, you know, various scenarios to when potentially school reopens. Uh, but I think in, a, in about a week's time, uh, you know, through, of course, the PTA, uh, through our, you know, partners within the IT field, uh, because there was also a huge problem suddenly created with logistics. Because, you know, of course, China was shocked, right? I mean, and everything tech comes from China. Uh, but I think we were able with, again, of course, with our privilege to prioritize getting those devices in, you know, getting those dongles in and getting, you know, all of those students on board. Now, of course, there is a bit of a problem within that domain as well. Uh, one of them was that we gave them the devices, but there was no guaranteed situation where, number one, they would still get internet access because we're not talking about a wired connection, you're talking about wireless. And you know, unfortunately, uh, the way you know, business works, uh, if you're in an area which is economically weaker, you don't make those kind of you know, investments in infra as you would in you know, posher areas. So there was still a bit of that problem that we tried to then sort of work with two dongles. Uh, and of course, I think the point that somebody made here regarding uh, there was a bit of a problem with disparities so we went to so at Shriram we were fairly clear on keeping cameras on for different reasons but then there was the issue where you know the 25 percent that came from you know weaker sections in society economically um, you know did not want to because you know unlike some of our some of their peers who are living in these massive you know, bungalows and big flats and apartments uh, you know a lot of those kids were coming from a one-room house uh, so I think that was a bit of a challenge as well. And, but I think we were able to, at least from an infrastructural pers uh, perspective, able to provide them with the resources. Uh, however, I do also know that once you know, people were allowed to travel, a lot of those people did make, you know, uh, sort of took the trains back to the villages, you know, where they were originally from, uh, and left Delhi. Now, when, when that happened, there proved to be challenges of electricity and you know, connections away. So there was obviously a learning loss. Uh, even, you know, of course, for the privileged ones as well, but more so for, you know, those who had limited access. Uh, yeah, but I think we were able to manage the, the big problem because, again, of the infra, of the devices and of the dongles, I think just because of the fact that, you know, we come from a certain background where the promoters are heavily invested in that ideology, even before the government mandated it. So I think we were lucky on that front. So, um, Paroma, coming to you, in a sense, you're at the other extreme. Because whereas this was a challenge for conventional brick and mortar schools, this was a great opportunity for uh, Baijus, which is predominantly a digital 
challenge. So can you just trace the trajectory of what happened as uh, uh, the reality of the pandemic hit, and then what happened when it began to recede? Sure, opportunity, because proliferation of devices and penetration of internet. Uh, so it, was, it has been a step change. And with the pandemic came a huge mindset shift amongst parents, amongst institutions, amongst students. And with the fact that the physical schools had closed. So all ed tech firms, not only Baiju's, saw a huge surge in, in uh, customer student base, in revenues, everything. But as you rightly say, after two years of absolutely dizzying growth, now we are coming back to a situation where physical schools are reopening. And students have a chance of coming back to physical classrooms. So where do we go from here? I think the answer lies in a blended model, which most of the edtech players have already adopted, uh, and definitely Baiju's. Uh, we have something called Baiju's Tuition Centers, which is one of our most successful products, which is where online education is supplemented by offline education, where students have a chance of coming to an offline center to clarify their doubts and also attend physical classes at a place near them. It's over the weekend. Uh, so I think the way uh, forward will be the blended model. The blended model also gives flexibility to students, parents, teachers, uh, as to how they want to go forward. And I think that's what it would, it would mean. Just one point about access. We really think that that's a very, very important component of education, serving the underserved. And this is not a plug for badges. All edtech companies have an education for all component. Baiju's touches about five million children who, who actually get it for free. Wow, wonderful. Yeah, but others also do. What I'm, I'm trying to say is that every major player has a component like that. And, and that's what uh, it is required because education is a fundamental right, right? Right. So I want to pursue what you said on two tracks. So the first track first, which is that I was just sharing with Ashish that uh, my son one day told me when he was in school, he said, Pa, I'm really frustrated sometimes in class. I said, why? He said, because I'm going to this physics class and I want to pay attention and I think we have a good teacher, but none of my classmates are paying attention because they know they're going to go to tuition in the evening. And I thought this was both a very perspicacious remark coming from a 13-year-old and also a very damning indictment of what is happening inside schools. And uh, I asked the principal one day, I said, you know, this tuition is a big problem. So she said, tell me about it. So I said, what is a percentage? So she said, if you looked at eighth standard and above, 90% of children are taking maths education. To me, this seemed like such a waste of time and energy, uh, both monetary as well as in terms of the child's attention. So Ashish, I think you're the best person to address some of those concerns of a, of a parent. So, I mean, of course, you've been a parent at the school, so you're aware. I think what we've done to try and address it is that, I mean, so, you know, with respect to digitizing education, we got a bit of a head start. And I think we've tried to approach the cutting out or trying to cut out the tuition or after school class situation 
by trying to give access to more content, whether it's created within the system or curated from outside uh, by our own teachers. So what we've been trying to do since 2015, early, late 2014, uh, is that we've sort of set up a resource you know, model within the school, uh, which is available to students you know, after school, uh, in which um, you know, their own teachers are creating content. Uh, because at the end of the day, I think what we uh, as a school believe in is that you know, we try and give the best possible teaching resources to our teachers, and we try and get the best teachers available to us, uh, and therefore the need for tuition should be limited. However, there is a bit of a catch there, is that unfortunately as liberal or as forward-thinking any school might be in India, you know, the eventual deliverables for any teacher or any school, whether it's within the national board system or within the international system, you need to get a certain grade or a certain score to move on to your next step, which is probably university. Now, until that situation changes, I think the tuition model will continue to thrive. I mean, as I was telling you, uh, in Delhi and CR, there are you know these demigods, which are these big tuition teachers who are you know the guy, the flashy guys who are changing cars every six months. LinkedIn is full of them all over, and I think they'll continue to thrive because there is a bit of a you know there's a bit of a uh, an agenda. When, I mean, there's a bit of a persona that they come with, where if you're not sending the, your kid to them. You know, and they have a two-year waiting period when it comes to enrolling kids. Uh, your kids are not going to do well, and I think just doing, to make you're not sure, doing your best by your yeah. Children. And I think because of the fact that a lot of you know schools um, like ours, you know, come with a demographic where they have access to financial resources. I think it's just one of those things where, just as a safe bet, you know, people do enroll into those systems. And the same goes, I think, across the board. You know, career counselors, for example. Again, you know, we've got guys based out of outside the city who are huge counselors, despite all schools having very good career counseling cells available. But you know, just to make sure that you don't leave that one tiny bit of a gap, uh, you know, these things thrive. And I think they'll continue to do so until the deliverables change or the expectations from the next step, whether it's university, college, jobs, or whatever in the future, uh, change. So I want to ask a question of all, all of you here on this uh, panel, which is that it seems to me that Digitizing education uh, throws up two kinds of opportunities, theoretically. One is that you can bring new technologies to bear and move away from what has been the model even before the first educational technology was invented, which is writing. So lecturing, you know, 90% of education is lecturing, and that existed even before the written word uh, or the printed word. So. Perhaps you can begin by answering this, Parama. What is uh, uh, what have been your experience as an edtech educator in terms of innovating in terms of what you deliver and the pedagogy? Uh, I would rather uh, answer this from the point of view of somebody who teaches. I also teach a couple of Great. courses uh, in Shivnadar University, where pretty much like what Maya and Kishle had said, the attention is a challenge with even MBA students or executive MBA students because you are competing with so many things, families, careers, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I always thought that the way to connect over a small digital square is uh, where most of the times videos are not on. Uh, so uh, is to tell stories, basically. I mean, when I was designing the course along with uh, the dean, and so we really focused on making the courses as experiential 
and as anecdotal as possible. Maya? Yeah, I mean, storytelling is a, is a great tool, uh, of course. I think the fact is, reading today in any case is visual. Um, the graphic novel, the Netflix miniseries, the adaptation of literature into uh, a movie. Um, I think this generation, the use of a keyboard instead of a pen. Uh, I want you to do a test of penmanship in this room right now. Don't look at me. And I, my handwriting is, has completely gone down the drain. But I mean, if you just do a straw poll, um, cursive is dead, uh, right? So technology is facilitating us to learn more and have more information at the same time, have more access, gadgets, devices, um, to, you know, to keep many things open in our minds at the same time. Um, Whereas the writing gives you a little bit more focus, you're, you're in that moment, you're, the act of writing, putting pen to paper, is an act of concentration. That concentration is lost. And I don't know if it's gonna come back. Because even when we're writing on a Word document with our keyboard, we have multiple windows open, we're surfing the net at the same time, we're gonna take a quick minute break and look at our social media feed. Uh, oh, you know what, I have to get up and do my steps. So let me do that. Um, you know, everything is coming at us through a device and through that technology. It's hugely liberating because it's giving us anything we want and anything we need at our fingertips. But in that anything we want and anything we need, we're losing out on serendipity. Stuff that we may not be looking for. Stuff that may come to us just by the by, you know, and, and get into our brain. So I think, the, like for me in my classroom, you know, the one exercise I give to my news reporting class is that I want you to leave your phones away somewhere. Uh, and not in the classroom, but when you go out, when you get into an Uber or you go for a drive, can you leave your phone in a bag and put it on silent and just look out the window and come back and on a piece of paper, write the 10 things that you have seen. I just want you to tell me what you saw out of your car window. That's it. That's the assignment. Can you do it? Do you know how hard it is for them to do that today? Yeah, I do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but innovation. What do you see as the opportunities for innovation with uh, digital uh, education? Well, allow me, Mohit, to, to take on a to not reply to, to innovation. I don't know about what innovation we can do, but you know, Maya and I have told stories over a small box for several years. That was not digitization. I think we need to understand what we are saying, digitizing education. I think digitizing education is borrowing Chomsky's phrase is like a hammer. You can use a hammer to build a house. You can use a hammer to crush a skull. Um, I think digitizing education is getting close to crushing a skull unless we understand it as an epistemology where, see, what is digitization? Digitization is information. It has speed. It has no orality. Orality has the authenticity of witness. It is primitive. The pace and speed of orality is what is natural human beings do, not digitization. But if digitization is going to be inevitable, and if we can marry digitization 
to orality and textuality and innovate a new social contract that probably can have some kind of a democratic uh, access to all. But I don't see just digitization of education is going to lead us anywhere. I think, I, you know, the, the mere statistics around the world tell us a different story. Let me push back on that. The demigods that he talks about, and in a sense, you know, the, the founder of Baijus, they were testimonies to orality. This was a man who could stand in a stadium and attract uh, 75,000 or 125,000 students. So that is orality. And in a sense, you could say that one of the promises of EdTech is to say, let me get the most uh, convincing and the most charismatic oral teacher and take them not to 100 people in a classroom or 125,000 people in a stadium, but to millions. So, he was a math teacher, actually. Yeah, 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 exactly. So let me ask you then, Ashish. Then you're making it performative. Orality, good orality is performative. No. no? Say, for example, you should, you should read Ganesh Devi's, uh, you know, the, 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 arc, the language arc, uh, survey. India has killed almost 1,500 languages. Killing of 1,500 languages means killing of 1,500 communities. That's orality. Orality, I don't think orality can be performance. In the classroom, a lot of us do have to perform to keep our... Performance, yeah, yeah, performance is performance, part yeah. of it, but not only performance. Yeah, it can't, can't well, be performance. Yeah. I mean, morality is much more than that, I'm saying. I, it will, is digitization enough? I mean, I would see digitization as information plus speed. So, I just, you know, before we close and uh, throw this open to the house, the way I look at it, one of the... Uh, one of the promises, the implicit promises of digitization from my perspective, only as a parent, not as an educator, was the fact that you have a huge variance in terms of quality of teachers in different places, different institutions. And digitization perhaps had this potential to equalize to some extent the, the access to quality educators. So I'm going to ask Ashish, um, was that a false idea, or is it something that still has some potential with limitations? So I think the opportunities within the ed, I mean, first of all, I think ed tech is either oversimplified or overcomplicated, depending on what side you're from. I mean, for me, ed tech has ed, which is the most important part, because I'm not a, I don't have a tech background, as you know, right? I come from a public policy, political science background. Uh, but I feel that the opportunities are that if, I'll simplify it for, you know, in, in, uh, just to keep time short. Simple people like yeah, you. Yeah, <laughs> simple people like you. <laughs> but uh, if you're in, just in the case of India, if you're a privileged institution or a privileged family living in tier one, tier two, it's good for supplementing what's happening in the classroom. If you're somebody who's living in the remotest parts of the country, you could get access to good quality resources, potentially good teachers, which you know you wouldn't have been able to otherwise, and access also to materials that you wouldn't have access to otherwise, right? And number three, I think the challenge that probably edtech companies need to solve now, and I think that's the focus that we have in a tiny little cocoon as well, uh, is built around the problem of plenty. And I think with the, the amount, the sheer amount of content, you know, I think as Maya said that, you know, uh, students or I think all of us consume on a day-to-day -day basis today, is that presents an opportunity for, you know, companies or maybe institutions themselves to sort of narrow down 
and get some of the best content out there or best resources out there and present it to students in a way that they don't necessarily need to then go out of that system uh, as a starting point. Because currently, the problem that we face is that you know Google, for all its you know fantastic thing out there, uh, you know throws up two million you know resources for every search that you do, and that results in a problem of you know uh, information that's not fact-checked, information that may be obsolete, information that may be completely incorrect, and with the algorithms running left, right, and center, it may be just suited to who you are. You know, in terms of the persona, in terms of the tech persona. So I feel that the opportunities are there. Uh, the promise of digitizing, I think, uh, unfortunately or fortunately, the way forward for, for what it looks like is digital, one way or the other. So I think fighting it is not the way. So I think institutions or systems or governments or, you know, states as a whole, I think need to just sort of plan a roadmap ahead and have a plan for Because I think the more you resist it, uh, you know, the later you are to the party, and then that's where issues come about. You know, and then you, you're too late to solve them. So I think uh, I think we're probably a few years late already, but it's still not too late to sort of set up a plan and accept it as a reality, and then work towards sort of you know working around it. I mean, I think the same questions were asked when the television came about or the radio came about, right? Uh, and of course, the internet is a much much larger spectrum of whatever when it comes down to the comparison. But I think it's um, it's a reality we must accept. And I think as an educator first and a technologist second, uh, for me also, uh, balance is everything. And I think ed tech needs to be balanced in a way where the tech is only supplementing the ed part. And the tech should not be the obsession. I think the obsession has to be making sure that the tech adds value to learning, which currently it may or may not. I can see you want to say something. I, just many thoughts actually that came into my head. But yes, I, I mean, I agree. I, Ashish summed it up well at the end. I don't think digitization can substitute face-to-face uh, -face interaction. And I'll tell you this. Uh, the batch of 2023 um, and even the batch of 2022 that graduated spent two to two and a half years of their college life on a Zoom screen. There's nothing in the world that can make up those two years of college and university. The same thing for younger students in school. So it's great to say that they have access to this technology, they have access to the fact that they'll be able to get their lessons, but I can tell you there are students all over the world, not just in India, not just from weaker sections, my own niece and nephew who were in New York City, they were handed out assignments over their app, their schools have apps, so over their school app, and there was no supervision. Um, or there was cursory supervision because everybody was adapting to a difficult circumstance and a different circumstance. Um, but there is no substitute for face-to-face -face learning. There is no substitute for campus life. There is no substitute for meeting your friends in the, in the playground during the lunch break. Those are the interactions that have been lost. And I don't think we can talk about digitization and what we've gained from it, but we have lost human interaction. And I think that is the impact we're going to, you know, we're going to feel it. It's not immediate because we're reveling in the fact that we managed to seamlessly move. Um, you know, so we're looking at the opportunities and what we've gained. I think there will come a time for a little bit of a reality check. Just one small point to add on to Maya's point. I think she, I think she's bang on when it comes to education. Isn't about lessons. 
I mean, that's a small part of it. And I think, as you rightly said, you know, one challenge that I think everybody faces, especially with the younger ones, is that it's not about delivering that lesson in the class. You can do that online, you can do it offline. It's all about, you know, social skills, motor skills, you know, just the ability to talk to each other, ability to eat with each other. I think all of those experiences, you know, you know, maybe Meta wants to do it in the virtual world, but I don't think you can ever replace that. And I think that learning that's been lost for those two, two and a half years for students, whether it's in grade one or maybe, you know, at the undergrad level, I don't think that's ever going to come back. So I completely agree that, I mean, tech is a tool. It's an enabler in a certain way, but it doesn't necessarily replace the experiences that you have in, you know, the real life. Well, you know, after having completely demolished technology or digitizing education, I'm saying it's also inevitable. Yeah, so, so that's why I'm saying a new social contract is important. Uh, what we did, the good things that came out of it was, apart from this, um, I see some, some of my students out here, I don't know, they'd probably be able to corroborate better whether they learned anything or not, but um, is that we could strike collaborations. Uh, we had something, I, I, I had global classrooms with uh, universities in Australia, which was not possible otherwise. That became accessible for students. So students were doing semester exchanges, which were, uh, digitized semester exchanges, otherwise would have been very expensive for them to go there and do it. Um, universities were signing collaborations. We went uh, and signed something like about 150 collaborations with, across the world during the COVID, and we're signing more and more. Even so, so those, those kind of things happened. Uh, we have hybrid blended online courses with Coursera, uh, Upgrad, those kind of uh, things. And, you know, so there are teachers, um, who are uh, who are doing that as that, that's their now their full-time profession my fear is that will that lead to job cuts because you know now you know you're going to be basically recording lectures and keeping them you don't need them so the teacher is not going to be required any longer it's like AI replacing copy editors uh, also the role of big media and big media is uh, in this sector would be by Jews I mean you know so we know the control of big media and the monopoly that big media does over uh, pro products. Which is why, as a sensitive communications professional, Parama already has a mic in her hand and is going to say something. Uh, first of all, I'm completely with Ashish in this. Ed tech, ed is important. Tech is not. Tech is important to the point, extent that it's an enabler. It's a tool or a platform. You have to harness it. Nobody even once uh, in right mind will think that technology can replace education. It can't. It can supplement or complement. The right. core skill is, is that of how you deliver, how you interact, how and how you blend going forward. Uh, technology has also enabled democratization. Like we say, remotest part of, of any country, underserved communities, that is no small feat. So one but there's also a digital that. exclusion from digital for those who can't afford. So it's because I think big media is also sometimes backed by big money, we can make that exclusion at least diminish to the extent possible. But finally, it all comes down to what your intent is, how you deliver, how you blend, how you go forward. You can't wish technology away. Sure. That is what is going to happen. But Paroma, even if one student is excluded in the class of 40, it is true. That's it's, exclusion. It's, it's very, it's absolutely true. Yeah. And, the last, and the last mile connectivity in our country yeah. is 
deplorable. I can, I mean, you know, I can throw a lot of data, but this is not the time and place for it. What I'm saying is that it's a continuous movement. It's just not going to stop and start or stop. It's like that. And finally, it really comes down to how you do it. I mean, if I can plug this, I called Shantanu Moitro, who's a Bollywood yeah. music director and a very good friend of mine, to talk about storytelling in my MBA class. That class got extended for two and a half hours. Every window was on. He talked about his journey, his trek down the Ganges, and how to tell stories. Non, nobody can supplement, I mean, you know, substitute that. But without technology, that wouldn't have been delivered. I rest my case. Great. Questions, please. OK, first of all, only because I can see him, and then the young man behind you, and then this young man. Uh, it was a very nice and enlightening talk, sir. I, I like the fact how it evolved over a bit. Initially, I was like, did you people are supporting online education. Then I saw critiquing a reflection on online education. Then, uh, then online education cannot be the, uh, the, a substitute to what classroom. Then, then Thanks. I was Do you have a question? A, I was also evolving with the di discussion. Now, my question was that uh, in, in, in the sense that we are looking at online education from only at targeting the elite section. Now it is doing. A lot of section of our um, country is excluded already. Which that is, is a question which was taken up. We'll no. take it up again. Your question, uh, we'll take it up again. No, no, my question, uh, let me complete my question because it will give a different uh, dimension. Uh, what I'm thinking is completely different. So uh, why not like give uh, like persons with disability? A lot of schools refuse us to give admission. A lot, a lot of times it's a problem. Also, a lot of persons with disability sit at home. So why cannot schools now, now run online education as also a model to work reaching the lower sections who are already excluded, who are working at homes, who have to do other kinds of work as a substitute to them to reach out to a broader section. And maybe in 30, 40 years, we may reach last my connectivity. I am of right to education in years to come. Sure, sure. Thank you. Sure. I'm sure it'll be well before 30 or 40 years. Yeah. Hi, I'm Shudipto. Um, question to all the panelists and your experience during the digitization or ed tech. Uh, did you feel the big brother watching worry coming into the classroom? Because classroom is a mutual learning experience which, is, which has a protection that nothing will go out of the classroom. The teachers often have the latitude to allow students a little more than what is usually acceptable or is parliamentary in terms of language or thoughts or whatever it is. Now, digitization puts in this whole possibility of someone technologically monitoring what's going on. So have people become more cagey? OK, great. We get your question. Yeah, can you pass the mic, Shudipta? Yeah. Yeah, uh, my question to all the panelists. I want your take about brand dilution when you give education by the online uh, medium. For example, you're giving out courses through Coursera, Udemy, and there are multiple people who can take up these courses. You are not limited by the batch size. So what's your take on brand dilution? And second, in your place, how would you judge two, uh, two people, one uh, with three degrees, uh, three online degrees versus one who has 
a regular uh, degree from, uh, let's say, the same institute. Great. Okay. So three questions, reaching the unreachable, big brother watching you, um, and pricing. Yeah. So uh, anybody? The idea that big brother is watching you is something that I think we've become uh, alive to in the last few years based on our use of digital technologies, social media, et cetera, et cetera. I take your point that the classroom has a compact between the student and, and the faculty member that you are free to discuss whatever you'd like to in this space. Uh, what's what is discussed here stays within the room, et cetera. I think, and I speak from my own experience personally, for the most part, the students, again, I come, I, I teach at an elite university, um, you know, where students are aware of these issues. Um, for the most part, students and the faculty member were aware that this could be recorded on some cloud somewhere, but that what was discussed within that session would remain within us unless someone chose to seek permission to take it beyond. Um, many faculty members at my own university uh, adopted different, different methods. I mean, some took their classes live online, some recorded lectures and uploaded them onto a drive uh, for students to use with a time limit. Students could not download them and they could not uh, save them and it was there for 24 hours and if you missed it, too bad, it's gone. So everyone devised their own mechanism, but I think the idea that we are being watched or surveilled or that our privacy is compromised with every click of uh, our smartphone uh, is something that we've, we've kind of surrendered to, which is a problem uh, in itself. But it's a reality we're all trying to contend with. It's not easy, but it's there. Consent forms, we've signed them even before coming onto this stage. This was not a thing five years ago, right? Uh, are you okay with being recorded? Zoom now announces if I'm the host and I record a session, it w I can't do it surreptitiously. It will announce to everybody in that room that the host is recording this meeting. And if you're not okay with it, you can actually say so over there. Um, so the idea that people have some limited mitigating choice is there, but that, that something up there is saving all that material, I think, you know, we've kind of, I don't know where, we're too far down that rabbit Genius. hole. Uh, genies yeah. out of the bottle, uh, yeah. My university, I know there were two teachers who were trolled very heavily because of their uh, lectures being leaked out on social media. However, we had to explain that, uh, you know, that possibility is alive, like she said, even without the recording, because every student uh, has a handheld device and they can be recording what you're speaking. In this case, of course, it was much easier, much convenient. There, someone's recording with a handheld device. <laughs> so, yeah, so, so, so yeah, that <clears throat> the initial resistance for faculty to move into that, what we call seamless now, uh, wasn't seamless uh, because of a, a lot of faculty raised the issue of consent and IP and et cetera, et cetera. And they were told nothing doing. Every lecture is going to be recorded. Uh, so there was uh, worry. And I think, <coughs> Whether it has impacted or not, I think there's been an unconscious way of, uh, unconscious impact in the way we speak. We wouldn't, we, we, we use euphemisms, we don't take names of people uh, that we think may land the institution to trouble. Or us. Something to say on, uh, on access? So, first of all, CPS, JNU. 
same place. I think um, we, so for example, for our institution, we are exploring that possibility. Uh, first of all, I mean, of course, you know, again, being an elite institution in a tier one city, we are, of course, uh, we do have access physically, you know, for people who need it. Uh, but I think we are exploring the idea, and I think I'll answer also the third gentleman's question there regarding the whole idea of diluting brand. So I think the, uh, I'll answer it together. So we are looking at an option, maybe not in the near future, but maybe five years down the line, where you know some of our teachers could potentially look at doing courses or could be looking at doing live classes, which are sent out to you know people who may enroll for that. Uh, in terms of brand dilution, I think it's fairly simple. Uh, there's two ways of looking at it. Now there's obviously the perspective of the brand in terms of you know make, having giving people access to the content. At the same time, if you're a business, then it, you can monetize it further, right? So as uh, I think Mohit said, why reach out 200 when you can reach out to a million? And I think a lot of brands, a lot of universities in the US have done that quite effectively, where uh, you know just by ensuring that there is a paid access link on their website, they're able to sort of generate much more revenue. And I think if you're an institution which is in the business of making money, there's no better opportunity than today to do that uh, you know, within the domain of uh, branding. Just one last thing about, I think, the second gentleman about the big brother situation, I think as Maya put it. So for example, in my institution, I'm technically big brother, right? Because, uh, but we make sure, first of all, that um, you know, we, we cater to how the content is managed, uh, keeping in mind all of the guidelines you know, prescribed by the European and the American standards to save data, so in, to ensure that it doesn't go out. And number two is that if you own a mobile phone, Big Brother's already watching. So I think the pandemic was not really the, the I think that cusp of, you know, when the turn happened probably a decade ago, so. Fascinating. Very briefly, the pricing question only, yeah. because okay. everything else has been answered. Yes, I mean, uh, online course, tech is expensive. Um, particularly in the higher classes, uh, science subjects, where uh, you need demonstrations, you need diagrams. These are really cost money to produce if it's, you have to be top, line, top of line. Have, at the same time, every tech company, again, certainly Baijus, has a mechanism that if your family income is falling below a certain level, you can apply for uh, either uh, a, a reduction or complete waiver. And that's a documented process. There's a way of going about it. And it's exercised every, by every salesperson. They have, I mean, it's totally documented data. And, and they have the discretion to a certain extent, yes. Parama, Maya, Kishle, and Ashish, thanks very much for this session. Thank you all for being here and asking such great questions. Sorry we couldn't take them all. All the News Laundry podcasts are available on Stitcher, iTunes, and any other podcast platform. Please subscribe to News Laundry. Help us keep news independent. To catch all our podcasts on news, pop culture, current affairs and sport, visit newslaundry.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And subscribe to our YouTube channel.